Welcome to Creative Place, the podcast for creative placemakers. I'm your host, Andrea Orlando. This episode is about the documentary film Shasha, Bears Ears, a land that encompasses 1.9 million acres in southeastern Utah. It is wilderness and also sacred ancestral lands for five Native American tribes. In December of 2016, President Obama designated the area a national monument. This came about as a result of a lobbying campaign organized by a five-tribe coalition. Filmmaker Angelo Baca, who is Hopi and Navajo, documented that period in the history of the campaign, and the film follows him and his grandmother sharing some of the stories of the place. We caught up with him at the West Creative Placemaking Leadership Summit a day after he screened the film at the University of New Mexico School of Architecture and Planning. In this interview, you'll hear him talk about the timeless nature of good storytelling and the awesome responsibility that comes with that. Congratulations on the film. Where do you go from here with it? I understand it's currently making the circuit of film festivals. Right now, it's going to be making its last round of film festival circuit. Um, I think we're looking at ways to distribute it and possibly utilize the platform for awareness and fundraising for the kind of work that we do. And it's been shown all over the world, including uh, Central and South America. Uh, Chile, Guatemala, and I think it's reaching greater audiences um, when we translate into different languages like Spanish. And so I think there's a lack of indigenous representation in storytelling with films in general and trying to make them more accessible and educating people all over the place about what's going on is very important for us. And that's why we made the film, is to have that indigenous representation and storytelling coming from our perspectives. So we're happy that this uh, is becoming a very well-known story. In the field of creative placemaking, we talk a lot about collaboration and process. Has the process of creating this film changed the dynamic between the people in it? And whose cooperation did you need, and how did you get that? So... I, what I really love about the film is that it, is, it in itself is an example of how to do better filmmaking collaboratively with indigenous communities. So I think there's quite a bit of uh, storytelling that's done about indigenous peoples, but never with them or having themselves represent themselves. And for us, that was important to have. Um, I'm Navajo and Hopi, and I'm from these communities. I'm from Bears Ears. But I also worked with two other wonderfully talented Native filmmakers. Uh, Shoni De La Rosa is a filmmaker who's had quite a bit of accolades in film festivals all over the world. And he was kind enough to help me out. Teresa Montoya, who is also a colleague of mine in the Department of Anthropology and is now a professor at the University of Chicago, is um, also affiliated. She's actually a a postdoc right now with the possibility of becoming a full professor in the future and works on environmental toxicity, including the Gold King mine spill. So 
many people who are talented, both you know academically and filmically, have contributed to this film. And Teresa's also um, Navajo, as is Shoni. So it was really three Navajo filmmakers made this possible. And we were just covering the very beginning of what was starting to happen with the Bears Ears. And that was the early stages of the Five Tribe Coalition, trying to make a monument push with the Obama administration to its ultimate success in 2016. So, of course, it was capturing a moment in time where all these great connections were being formed. You know, all the tribes were actually working together, sitting side by side. I'd never seen that before. I lived there my entire life, and I was blown away. I was completely surprised, not just because the story was forming right before my eyes, but when you sat in the room, you actually felt the power of people's passion and their love for the land and for each other, that they knew that there was no way forward except together. And it was a matter of necessity, but it was also a change in the emotional and mental, I think, interaction, you know, and that had never been something I felt as palpable as during the time that we were shooting, is people had all these hopes and goals and future aspirations, high ideals that they were striving to. And I thought that was one of the most beautiful times I've ever seen with our nations coming together like that. Your film is also, I would imagine, an expository piece intended to present an argument and achieve the goal of retaining uh, national monument status. But a film makes an appeal also to emotion. What Mm. emotions were you hoping people would feel when they watch it? I really wanted to make sure that people understood the way that you know, storytelling can have an impact because we come from a storytelling culture. You know, our indigenous um, cultures here in this area, they revere storytellers. They are powerful people and they have gifts. And those are the kinds of things that are shared in the wintertime, especially in Navajo culture, where it's like there are these very powerful stories and there are certain things you can share and cannot share. And what we're finding with the Bears Ears in particular is that People have a lot of stories about it that are just now coming out and being told. So we're slowly getting to share those stories more and more. And I think that people realize that the two are connected, that you have to protect the place and the people through your story, whether that's like testimony or having a a document of what's happening on the ground in the real world at the time and how all that all ties together very seamlessly with the past, the present, and the future. So the Bears Ears for us is like a place without time. It really does have the encapsulation of all of our past heritage, our past ancestors in the present moment with the same blood that runs through our veins and our DNA right now, who our ancestors were is who we are now. Going into the future, thinking about the coming generations and all of the obstacles and challenges that are ahead for them and that we want to leave something behind, that it was our directive and our mandate to protect this place and that we do so not just with our actions but the power of our words, our stories, our pictures, our images, our art, our music. All of that together 
cannot be separated. They're not compartmentalized. They're all part of one whole. And I think that's part of the mental shift that people have to make is away from this westernized compartmentalized thinking where you can only treat one little thing when really we're looking at the overall overall comprehensive whole. And and the Bears Ears does that. It takes everything into account. All the plants, the animals, the medicine, the landscape, the people, all the elements, the water, the air, you know, the earth. There's so many things that really require our care and responsibility. And I think, you know, nothing says that more powerfully than the old stories of the elders, of the community members, our ancestors, and the people who are there now. As you made the film, who did you envision as your audience? And how do you want each different audience to process the information? I envisioned people who knew nothing about Bears Ears to get as much as they possibly could in a short amount of time, because it's a short documentary. And it is designed to be very surface level so that people have like a very basic understanding of what the issue is. And I really wanted it to supersede the coming discourses of public lands and national monuments and politics, which I feel like of all the many stories that are out there, this is one of the few that does that. It gets to the heart of the matter, talks about the cultural and spiritual significance, which supersede all of that surface nonsense. Mm -hmm. The other stuff is just additional layers, right? But what I want people to come away with, native and non-native, is to understand what the essence of Bears Ears is. And then they can ask those questions, whichever direction they want to go, and get into it deeper Mm -hmm. on their own. Yeah, that that was definitely my experience of watching the film, uh, that it was really a story uh, about a place and not so much an argument. Uh, and it was subtle, I guess, in that respect. So let's talk about uh, your grandmother. She was a central character. Uh, how did she react to the final, uh, the, the final uh, film? And did she have any input in directing the content? You know, my grandmother, uh, she's been with me on a couple of other film projects, but for the longest time, for years actually, she never wanted to be on camera. She hated having her photo taken and especially video, right? But um, I think after all the years that she has seen me and observed what I do and how I do it, especially in terms of working with the community and and the things that I care about, I think she changed her mind because she felt like Bears Ears was so important that she was willing to be on camera for it. She was willing to be interviewed and share some very important stories about it. And it's not, you know, without reason. Like, there were many people who came into our community who really betrayed their trust, who really disrespected them, who really treated them um, very... um, very awfully, you know. Everyone from uh, newcomer, settler, colonial people, and, you know, Mormon influence, and drillers, miners, like, and then anthropologists, you know, academics, people who were, like, trying to exploit you for your story. They didn't really care about you or what you're talking about. They only cared about what they could get for themselves. And so 
it took a long time for her to feel comfortable enough to actually share those personal parts of her story with me. And I thought that was hugely valuable and uh, just incredibly uh, priceless, you know, because what you see in the film are only a couple of parts of what she was telling us. You know, the elders, once you get them going, they start talking and they're sharing all this amazing stuff. Like, it just blows your mind. You just basically have, you know, these encyclopedias walking around that know so much more than you. It's what I value about, about the work that I'm doing now. When I work with the community and I work with elders, to me, they're my professors. They're my committee members, you know. They know just as much, if not more, than my so-called academically Western-trained expert professors because they have that knowledge and they have the Western knowledge. So, you know, I feel like I can spend my whole life with them and not know everything there is to know. And it humbles me all the time. I, I don't know enough. And it's not about knowing enough. It's about trying to understand, like, the responsibility that you have when you know these things and then what you have to do with that knowledge. And it's a flood of that knowledge that I'm getting now because working with the Five Tribe Coalition and all those wonderful people who want to protect the land, um, before I've only had, you know, a couple of good perspectives from my own background, Navajo and Hopi, right? And now we have these other Pueblos, we have the Ute folks, and like, there are multiple perspectives here. Now all the stories illustrate the landscape. Now everything's live and pops out at me. Now I can't unsee it. Every time I go there, I see something new, I see something different, because I could only see it from a couple of vantage points, and now I can see several. And it, it actually is almost overwhelming sometimes. It's a huge responsibility because you realize it's not just about you, your perspective and your community and your tribal perspective. It's about so many more, more perspectives that have to be valued and taken into account. And so it's been a, a great awakening in a lot of ways um, doing this work because what I realize is that so many uh, folks have this knowledge inside of them and we're struggling you know, to, to try to take care of that knowledge, to preserve it, to pass it on to future generations, and represent it in the best way possible. You screened uh, the film on the eve of the West Creative Placemaking Leadership Summit at the university. And to people from various backgrounds, various states, who uh, do creative placemaking, how do you feel about the way the film was received last night? And uh, were there any questions that you were hoping creative placemakers would ask you? I was very comfortable with the way that the film was received. I think mostly um, when audiences view the film, they take a little while to absorb it and have an actual uh, response formulated <laughs> to, to react to. And sometimes I really wish that um, I got a better idea from audiences how they th are feeling or thinking or what their actual true responses are. And uh, I'm trying different creative ways of trying to figure that out. Um, and I think it's uh, sometimes very difficult for me to get a gauge of what the audience is really thinking. And I appreciate it when somebody just, you know, 
gets the ball rolling and starts saying something that's like really open and honest. And then when you start having these dialogues, and I think that's what needs to happen because, you know, um, we're living in a time now that's pretty divisive, both in belief systems and governance. And, you know, one of the key things that needs to happen is having dialogues, conversations, meaningful, substantive, productive, positive conversations. And that's something that we're running low on. And I'm trying to get as many people and many different audiences as possible to understand that it's necessary, even if it's hard work, because indigenous peoples are probably one of the least known about groups in this country and all over the world. And so no one knows how to talk about it. So rather than own their ignorance and say, I don't know, <laughs> they don't say anything. And they pretend that they know. And then if they know a little something, then they're an expert in it. When clearly that is not the case and everybody is severely lacking in actual ways to engage meaningfully with indigenous peoples. So my job, probably half my job, is really translation. Like how, how does it register with you? How does it make sense to you? If I'm talking to an anthropologist or an archeologist, then I can use that kind of you know, Western academic terminology. If I'm talking to like a storyteller or a reporter or someone who is interested in doing films, then I can talk to them about like, you know, storylines and perspectives and representation. And, you know, it's, if it, I'm talking to a lawyer, I got to speak legalese, like whoever it is, like how can I help you understand me? Mm -hmm. You have to put all these filters on it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot on you. It's a lot on me. Yeah. And so, like, a, as a filmmaker and a storyteller, that makes it a lot easier mm -hmm. because I put it out there, and then they see it through their own filters. Mm -hmm. So they get to understand how they see it through their own eyes. But then we can have these deeper conversations one-on-one -on -one and then make more headway, more progress, when they can kind of reach a middle ground with you somewhere. And that's hugely important because in this day and age, people are, they're losing the ability, the skill, and the patience to actually have those meaningfully engaging conversations. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's one of the things I love about being in this field of creative placemaking is that uh, we have alternatives for sparking a dialogue and it's through, through art. Exactly. Do you have any advice for creative placemakers who want to make a documentary? Um, yeah, I think for people who want to do documentary film, uh, I think you have to realize the kind of power and the reach that you have, that when you make something, it's not just um, you know shown once and then it's over. Um, there are so many different afterlifes of media production that exist in the world, circulate, recirculate, get cut up, repurposed, stitched together, spun, contextualized in a different way. All your things taken in and out of different ways that you meant it. You know, it's the same thing that can be done with a text that you write, but I think for purposes of today's technology, everything keeps moving and, and evolving and it moves at such a fast rate that you um, basically lose control of your story and your material as soon as you put it out into the world. Uh, so 
be cautious, be uh, careful, be considerate, um, and be mindful that what you're doing is extremely powerful and it can supersede anything because before there was technology, before there was the internet, there was books, before there was books, there was storytelling and there will always be storytelling at the fire, at the dinner table, in the mornings, over coffee, over breakfast, anything. It doesn't matter. You don't need all that extra stuff. What your message is and how you say it and who you're saying it to, that, that could be timeless. It could be, you know, no barrier to it. And it could go passed on through generation to generation and have an impact far beyond what you could ever understand or know. And we know that in our indigenous communities because all the stories that have been handed down from generation to generation, the ones that survived were because they're meaningful. Even today, they're still significant and they stood the test of time. They, they withstood removal, displacement, genocide, starvation, disease, famine, warfare. They still do. And they still mean a lot. So I think it's a huge responsibility. It's a big part of what you're doing requires accountability, requires care, your thought before you do it, the thought while you're doing it, and the thought after. It has its own life, and you have to respect that, and you gotta be very careful. So if you're doing it with care, with consideration, thoughtfulness, mindfulness, and in, it's like in our, in our way of thinking, our ceremonies and our prayers, you think about it, why we're doing this. Then you think about it the entire time when you're doing it. And then you think about it afterwards about what you just put out into the world that will impact people, landscapes, plants, animals, elements, the rest of the cosmos. Everything's connected to everything else. So just be mindful of what you do and make it good. And then you can actually change the world for the better. Thank you so much, not only for those words of wisdom, but for those words of inspiration. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I wonder if you could say something to me in, in the other language that, that you speak. Um, that's a really great um, <laughs> request. You know, you know the, one of the reasons I named my documentary Shashja Bears Ears was so that I could hear non-native people try to speak <laughs> in our language to try to say the name correctly. And it's like, I've only heard it done maybe once or twice in all the times we've shown it where they actually said it correctly and they were trying to like figure it out before they said it publicly. Um, it's great, it's great. You know, we're always asked to speak, you know, eloquently and, um, you know, uh, very smoothly in the English language, but you're, most people are not asked to do the opposite, mm -hmm. to try to say a few words in our language. So I always say, you know, that the land remembers the language. So if you speak the language in the land, no matter who it is or where you're at, uh, you, you actually uh, will have a response because it remembers the indigenous language before English. So even wherever you're at, whether it's like in the Northeast or on the West Coast or here in the Southwest, even if you say the name of a place or say the name of um, 
a plant or animal or you just say hello or say thank, say thank you. Even if you're not from here and you, ha- you say that word, I think you will get an actual visceral, visceral response from, from the land somehow or, you know, inside of you. So, you know, just remember that um, our languages, our people, they're older than America itself. They're older than the English language. And they actually remember, you know, when you say it, give words and breath power. You can actually change things in, those, in this world. So one of those things, um, uh, working philosophy too, is, you know, uh, it's like, it's up to you. You know, you can, that's, that's basically what it means. You can do as much or as little as you like, but you're basically getting out of it what you're putting into it. And so if you don't like things the way that they are and you want to change them for the better, then it's up to you. You've been listening to Creative Place, produced by the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking. Please check out our website at cpcommunities.org, and please let us know if there are any topics that you would like us to record. Bye for now.